human beings, we are wired for connection. We cannot survive without each other. We are deeply interdependent and we are meant to be in community with each other. Even the most like hermetic person <laughs> needs other people for something. So what do you think of when you hear the word family? Well, for some, it's feelings of love and belonging and support. And for others, it's estrangement and friction and angst, especially over these last few years, which is why the notion of chosen family and the role of friends has become an increasingly important part of the conversation about really who we surround ourselves with, how they make us feel and how together we can expand the idea of family and friendship to create a bigger impact ripple, both in our own lives and in society. So this is one of the topics that we dive into in today's powerful best of conversation with Mia Birdsong. As the founding co-director of Family Story, Mia lifted up a new national story about what makes a good family. And as a vice president of the Family Independence Initiative, she leveraged the power of data and stories to illuminate and accelerate the initiative low-income families take to improve their lives. Mia is a senior fellow of the Economic Security Project, was an inaugural Ascend Fellow and faculty member with the Aspen Institute, a New American California Fellow and advocate in residence with the University of Pennsylvania's School of Social Policy and Practice. And in her book, How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community, she examines community life. She really reimagines family and this term chosen family and points us towards the promise of a sense of collective vitality with other human beings, which is something that I think we all yearn for so much these days. So excited to share this best of conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So many things I want to explore with you. Um, things around the moment, things around the work, things around the book and your ideas. You're hanging out in Oakland, California right now, where it sounds like you've been planted for a long time. Mm -hmm. Originally, though, from um, from the East Coast, from, from actually New York. About Yes. Originally from Rochester, New York. And then I lived in Brooklyn for seven years before I came to Oakland. Yeah. So that was like after Oberlin? Yes, exactly. 
Got it. What was, I mean, so growing up in Rochester, I think we're probably similar ages-ish. Um, 27. I'm 54, so I'm a little bit older. What was Rochester like then? Because I, I know it's from friends that have sort of been in and out lately. It's It seems like a completely different place. I feel like I don't know what Rochester was like because yeah. my, certainly, I think this is often true for kids, but it was definitely true for me. Um, my, the vast majority of time that I spent was either at home or in school. It's not like I was, you know, out. I was, I did lots and lots of extracurricular activities. So I wasn't like hanging out in my neighborhood, um, very much. And I certainly wasn't paying attention to like, you know, what the city council was doing or how, like what businesses were growing and which ones weren't and things like that. So I feel like, my childhood wasn't, it, it, it was, it existed in a kind of a bubble, but not a protective bubble necessarily, just a very specific one. How so when you say not protective? So I grew up in the city of Rochester in an all black neighborhood and got bused to a suburb that was almost entirely white to go to school and with like a handful of other black kids to, you know, I'm doing air quotes to integrate it. And there was no, you know, there was no conversation kind of through the program that bust us about what our experience might be like going to an all-white school. There was no support for us. There definitely was no work being done in the school with like the staff to, you know, talk about racism. So we all experienced, you know, tons of racism. We got called all kinds of things. Um, There were lots of assumptions about who we were and what our families were like and what our neighborhoods were like. Um, For a long time, most of my white friends weren't allowed to go to my house um, because of what their parents assumed about the neighborhood that I lived in. So it was a bubble, like in that I didn't really know what was going on in the rest of the city um, and the county, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a protective bubble. Yeah, got it. And I mean, I know you describe yourself as sort of like pretty much a latchkey kid too, from the time you're about eight, where eight, yeah, it was, you're pretty much, I mean, even when you're back home, sort of you're experiencing what you're experiencing during the day. And then you're, you're largely on your own because your mom is single mom um, mm-hmm. trying to raise a family and just working a lot. Yeah. I mean, she worked, you know, regular hours. She worked like yeah. nine to five and as an only child. And like, I think just who I am kind of um, fundamentally as a person, I was very independent. So yeah, when I came home after school as a kid, I took, you know, took the bus home and I came home and let myself in and made myself a snack and did whatever chores I was supposed to do and did my homework. And I mean, we ate, to, you know, we ate dinner together every night, but there was like a, you know, a three hour period, I would say, like after school that I was um, on my own, which frankly, I really appreciate in terms of what it allowed, like how it developed me as a person who is capable. And while I experienced, you know, kind of low level to medium level racism at my school, I also, I loved school, like loved it. I was good at it. Like the way that, you know, kind of American education is structured happens to work for me. I did sports. I did theater stuff. I did music stuff. So I was very involved. I had a really like interesting, several interesting like groups of friends, right? So I, there were like all of the nerdy white boys that I was in AP classes with. And like during lunch, this is in high school, we would like sit and play Euchre or hearts 
and like watch Alfred Hitchcock movies on the weekends. And then there was like all the kids who took shop classes and drove motorcycles um, who I would sometimes hang out with. And then there was my cheerleading squad. And then there was all the like theater and music people. And then there was like my friends who, you know, did drugs and went out clubbing. So I had like, I had this really amazing community that I kind of, and, and like these groups of people who I kind of crossed over kind of traditional high school boundaries um, with. And I loved it, like totally loved it. I'm always curious when actually somebody shares something like that, where you can sort of like drop into different groups, different communities and feel like you're, you're at home. And part of my curiosity tends to be, was it that you were, you were just really comfortable being in your own skin, no matter who you were around and people loved that and wanted and, and wanted to be around that too? Or, or did you learn to code switch really effectively? So I actually think it was probably both of those things, right? Huh. Like, I don't know that I felt comfortable in my skin, but I think comparatively for a uh, high school, I mean, I was, I feel like I was, I was kind of very grounded and confident for a high school student, but definitely felt super insecure, right? For all of the kind of normal reasons that a teenager feels insecure, but also the reasons that a black girl in a predominantly white environment would feel insecure. And I code switched like crazy, um, for sure. And I also think that it wasn't that I felt at home in each of those places. I think it was that like part of me felt at home in each of those places. Mm -hmm. And I think for a long time, I really wanted the like, you know, kind of myth mythological um, group that was just like my ride or die people from, you know, childhood to adulthood that I just like, that was my like group of people. And at some point I realized that I just wasn't going to have that. And I could, I could be more fully myself with lots of different groups of people as opposed to being part of myself with them. And if they couldn't handle it, then I didn't want to hang out with them. And what I found is that most, most of them like welcomed the whole Mia as opposed to just the part that they, that I assumed that they were cool with. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like I found home in one place. It was really that I found home in a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, the way you describe it also is some really interesting foreshadowing there for the work that you would eventually end up doing <laughs> sure, like, totally. like a decade down the road from there. Um, bouncing around also the, um, the other curiosity I sometimes wonder about, because I know this is a similar experience to me, was whether that experience um, gave you energy or took energy from you. The, the kind of code switching and bouncing around? Yeah. I think it was some of both, right? And I think that that's true of me now. I'm definitely... I mean, I think I'm an ambivert, right? Like, there are times when I, like, absolutely get restored and energized by being with groups of people. I love public speaking, right? Like there's something about that kind of like holding court with a, like an audience of folks that, that totally just like gives me a lot of juice. And at some point I need like tremendous amounts of alone time. <laughs> like I, you know, and I think that is again, partly constitutional and partly because I was an only child and I spent a lot of time um, alone as a kid and really learn to enjoy uh, my own company. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, not an only child, but actually similarly wired, love to be on stage, but I run for the stage door as soon as I'm done speaking. Mm -hmm. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I just want to be walking alone somewhere after that. Um, from high school, you end up in Oberlin. Um, mm -hmm. Did you have a sense for what you wanted to deepen into there? Or was it just sort of let me see what's calling me? 
I mean, I I think I went in thinking I wanted to major in psychology and that I don't even think I took one psychology class. <laughs> um, I, you know, so Oberlin is, was at the time, um, one of the only colleges that had a freestanding black studies program, which I, and I had no idea when I went, I just, I chose Oberlin because when my mom and I went to visit colleges and I got, I, we drove into town, I was just like, the vibe is right. I was just like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And so my second semester of my first year, I took a like intro to black studies with this amazing professor, Adrian Lash Jones. And my mind was just like completely blown. And I became a black studies major largely to learn, you know, all of the things that I should have learned in the first 18 years of my life. And to just like to, I think, understand who I was in a way that I hadn't before. And I'm lucky that my introduction to Black studies was deeply intersectional. So it was very much about learning about race, but also learning about gender. And I feel like I got to see myself in the world in a way that I hadn't before and see that my experience, you know, kind of both what I grew up with, but also kind of like how I interact with and am seen by American culture, like had a historical basis, but also was like a shared experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious how that, so you decided you want that to be your focus. Did you have a sense beyond deepening into your own understanding of how that would end up informing what you would then turn around and do in the world, like when you left? No. Yeah. I am was not and remain not somebody who really plans long term. <laughs> um, you know, I wasn't I didn't take that major thinking like, oh, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> right. Like what what does one do with a black studies major? I had no idea. I, I It's not even so much that I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I wasn't I just wouldn't wasn't planning anything. And you know, my, my path to where I am now was very circuitous and random in lots of ways. And I still don't think about like, you know, what, I have no idea what's next for me. Like I finished this book, I finished my podcast, both of those projects, you know, took a huge chunk of my life for the last two and a half years. And um, I have no idea what's next. But I think at this point, I recognize that, that, you know, planning ahead in that way is not something that I do. And I also have enough experience with it all working out that I just like have faith that I will find my next thing or my next thing will find me and it'll be what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, even though it's not, you know, necessarily a linear path, like there are definitely through lines in the work you Absolutely. Know, from the earliest days. And, and one of those, you know, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you end up in Brooklyn, eventually spending some time as a VP in the Family Independence Initiative, really, I guess, focusing on strengthening communities and to a certain amount, um, exploring the ideas of self-determination, low-income people. Mm -hmm. And that really, it seems like that's also the birthplace of your fascination for family and friendship and community and bigger picture, like what is this thing we call the quote American dream and how do we define <laughs> it? And, and what's it actually doing to and for? Yeah. 
All right, well, let me go back a little bit. I mean, okay. the things I left out about my path were like, you know, the time I spent in publishing and my few years apprenticing as a midwife and my stint doing country music. Like there was <laughs> there's some other things that that existed kind of along the continuum that I didn't talk about because they weren't super relevant. So wait a minute. My... Wait, 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 wait. I, <laughs> yes. I, we can't just brush by those things. <laughs> So especially like, um, all right, so midwife and then stint doing country music? Yeah, not as a li- not for a living, but yeah. Okay. So when I lived in Brooklyn, a friend of mine taught me how to play guitar and she and I uh, started playing country music together. We, totally, we, went, we went to Merlefest, we went busking in Nashville, and then when I came to Oakland in 2001, I wanted to keep playing music, so I like through Craigslist, I think, like connected with this amazing um, singer songwriter called AJ Roach. And he and I were a duo for a long time. And then a trio, we got a fiddle player. And um, yeah, for, for, I don't know, three or four years, he and I would play around the Bay Area and occasionally go on like short tours, you know, in California. It was super fun. It's where I met my husband because my husband's musician um, was kind of through that, that music scene. Yeah, I have an abiding love for like old timey country music and bluegrass. Uh, I love that. <laughs> okay, so so my entry point to activism, but also to like the the invitation to imagine the world that we want was through abolition. Mm. I was living in New York, and a friend of mine who is um, immigration attorney was in Berkeley, and she. And I can't remember why she thought this was a good idea, but thank goodness. Thank you, Christina Velez. She invited me. She was like, you should come to this conference that's happening about the prison industrial complex and abolition, like at Berkeley, at the University of Berkeley. So I came to California. I think I I don't think I'd ever been to California before and went to this conference and my mind was blown. Like I got to hear Ruth Wilson Gilmore speak. I got to hear Angela Davis speak. And I was introduced to this idea that, you know, that is like having this resurgence right now, which is amazing, which is that we don't need prisons and policing because they don't keep us safe. You know, and the and the thing that I think people focus on is this the absence of prisons and policing. But what abolition is really asking us to do is think about what are the things that actually create safety and well-being for us. And, you know, when I ask people about it, like they know, right? Like people need food and housing. People need access to health care. People need education. People need mental health services. People need like all if we think about the crises that we have, right? Like police are not like we kind of unleash police on all of these issues and challenges that they are not equipped to um, handle. Never mind that the system of policing in the United States has its founding in slave catchers and it's just infused with white supremacy and is really about protecting property because black people were property and it's not about keeping us safe, right? So that entry point, like I think planted the seeds of how I think about what we need in community because it's not that you know, without prisons and policing, that harm isn't going to happen. It's just that we actually need to address harm in a way that actually reduces it, right? We need to address harm in a way that 
is reparative and protective of people who experience harm, but that also works with people who are perpetrating it so that they don't continue to perpetrate it. And that only happens well in the context of deep community. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. It is so interesting to see what's happening now and a re-examination of these institutions in a, in a really major way. And then a reimagining of, okay, so what was the superficial purpose 
that was given to them? What is the deeper down reason that they exist? And what would we need to live in a quote, you know, like um, flourishing society mm-hmm. if those cease to be there? Like what what are the what are the pillars that stand in its place, in their place for us to all thrive together um, and still feel safe and still feel whatever it is we want to feel from the illusion of what we think those things are giving us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of part of the invitation, too, is to examine like w- how we think about safety, mm. because I think and again, when I've when I've talked to people about that in particular, like what actually makes you feel safe? You know, people often are like, well, if something, if like somebody's breaking into my house, like I'm going to call the cops and I'm like, well, the cops are going to come like after, right? The cops are not going to be there in time to save you, you know, but you know, who will be there? Like if you need them is your neighbors. So if you have a relationship with your neighbors, which is really about, you know, community. And if you have a deep relationship with your neighbors and they actually are folks who would show up for you if they found out that like you were in the middle of experiencing violence, that's what's going to keep you safe, not calling police. The police will come and like try to get your stuff back. But, you know, again, like that doesn't that doesn't address the fear that happens when your home is violated. It doesn't address the experience of and the trauma part, right? That doesn't do anything for that. That's your stuff. What you really need is is people in your life who are able to help you heal from the trauma that you've experienced and who help you like actually feel safe. Police don't do any of that. Yeah. And an even bigger picture, you know, when you look at, okay, so why do people who cause harm cause harm? What are the systems that, that happened underneath that, that brought them to a place where that is what they felt Absolutely. You know, like they needed to do. Then harm we layer doesn't in, happen a whole... in a vacuum. And I think on top of that, like, it's not just that police don't prevent or address harm when it happens, but that police actually perpetrate harm, right? I mean, and like, obviously, they're like part of what we're seeing, we're seeing is, this, you know, another cycle of, of white violence and police being part of that, that they actually, like, cause violence to human beings, and then are also perpetrating violence to the people who are protesting because of the violence that they cause. But outside of that, right, we can think about the fact that, like the violence that happens and the harm that happens when you remove people from their communities, um, the violence that happens when you when you have a system of punishment that it reinforces this idea that there is that people are either good or bad, um, when in fact all of us experience harm and all of us perpetrate harm. And one of the things that I feel like I learned from the folks who I talked to. Uh, for this book about safety and about how we actually address harm and the idea of redemption is that when we have a system that kind of creates that binary that we're like, you're either good or you're bad. Part of what we're doing is we're saying that we are not redeemable, right? Like us individually and collectively, we're not redeemable because if somebody is bad, we lock them up. We think of them, we think of human beings as disposable. So therefore, when we cause harm, which we all do, we're saying that there's no way for us to to find redemption. Um, there's no way for us to repair whatever rift or severing is created by the harm we cause. And that I feel like is one of those things that continues to reinforce this idea of our separateness. But human beings 
we are wired for connection. We cannot survive without each other. We are deeply interdependent and we are meant to be in community with each other. Even the most like hermetic person <laughs> needs other people for something. Yeah, and I completely agree. So this fundamentally, and, and I guess in a more focused way, really understanding and exploring um, the ideas of abolition, um, especially around policing and prisons, becomes sort of like the jumping off point for you. It becomes a thing that draws you in and opens you up and has and, and starts to have like turn you into the broader question of the role of community mm -hmm. in everything. And then I guess that becomes really a dominant focus for you in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So there's the work that you mentioned that I did. So, I, you know, I came to the Bay and did, well, the first work that I did was actually at this organization called Health Initiatives for Youth. And I got introduced to harm reduction there and sex positivity. And, and again, I think a kind of like suite of orientations that were really about um, how do we support the physical and emotional well-being of young people in ways that see them as whole human beings and see them as connected to community um, and don't demonize people for choices that they make, but like assume that all of us ultimately want to move toward our own well-being. And that work was really informative in terms of my just, just kind of like adding to the, not just kind of the abolition approach about like, what are we getting rid of? But like, what are the things that we need to build the world that we want to live in? And, um, and then I had a kid and then um, I started doing work at the Family Independence Initiative, which you mentioned. And that's an, or that's an organization that is focused on economic justice, but is really focused on kind of shifting the narrative that we have about why people are poor and shifting how we think about resourcing poor folks. And the shifting the narrative part is being like, people are poor because they don't have no money, right? And people don't have money because of wealth hoarders, not because they are spending it on, you know, sneakers or lattes, not because they don't know how to budget, but because the money that exists in the United States is distributed in a deeply inequitable way. And that if we're going to support people in not being poor, then we have to recognize that being poor is an absence of money so that the way that you address it is by giving people money. So in many ways, it's like deeply simple. It's tremendously simple. But because of all of the things that are built into the American dream narrative, right, this idea, this, this idea that, that America is a meritocracy and and even though we will acknowledge like a little bit of systemic oppression, like we have all these examples, right, of people who worked really hard and like made it. And we hold up those examples as a model for like what everyone should do without recognizing that they're actually exceptions. Um, and I put myself in this category, right? Like I am an exception in that way. And not because I'm like smarter than anybody else or, you know, was more thoughtful about how I like, you know, I just told you, like, I don't pl I didn't plan anything <laughs> like I this I just got really, really lucky. <laughs> and we want to, you know, I think particularly those those of us who have power and privilege and those of us who have managed to, for whatever reason, find ourselves kind of in the space of success as defined by the American dream. We want to believe that 
that was our own doing, right? It's important to us that we, that we are able to say, like, I deserve this because I worked really hard for it or I did whatever it was. And it's not that people don't work really hard. People work really hard. But like, so do all the people who are poor. <laughs> like, hard work is, is our kind of baseline. And certainly from the research and relationships that I have with people who um, experience economic injustice, they are actually working harder than everybody else. So that's not the story, right? Like success is not about hard work. Um, success really is about either you have power and privilege because you were born with it, or you get lucky and you become an exception. So the idea of giving poor people money goes against like this very deeply entrenched American belief that the way that you make it is you work hard. And that means that people who don't make it must not be working hard. And God forbid, we should want to reward that, right? Like people are like, don't, you can't give people money because then they'll become dependent or um, they didn't earn it. So partly my work at the Family Independence Initiative was about pushing back against that narrative. But I think the mistake that I made in that was trying to kind of emphasizing proving that that people who are poor work really hard and have all of these kind of attributes, right? Because the fact is that the things that we're talking about, right, the things that money allow us to have are things that everyone should have, right? And because we live inside of capitalism, if you want housing, food, healthcare, education, like money is the way that we get that. And if money is our kind of the currency, I mean, literal currency for us to access things that are human rights, then everyone should have it. And it doesn't matter if they work hard or not. It doesn't matter if they are, you know, following whatever rules um, our society has laid out for us. Somebody who fits every single stereotype that exists about who poor people are. The like, you know, 55-year-old man who is smoking pot in his mom's basement and doesn't have a job still deserves housing, food, healthcare, and access to information. So those things are not things that any of us have to earn because they're just human rights. And you also can't unearn them. And I think that's kind of where I think about how abolition and my work around economic justice intersect. Because, of course, what happens when somebody is imprisoned is they these rights are taken away from them. Yeah, and it, it on every level. Um, I mean, I guess that's also where... Um because I know the conversation around guaranteed basic income, which I know mm -hmm. you've been a part of that conversation, also drops in. Because if you look at these things as fundamental human rights, then that becomes a much more conversationable thing to yeah. add in. And I will say, you know, the research that I did for the podcast I did around guaranteed income, you know, was about two and a half years of research. And I did not imagine that there would be somebody, you know, a potential, you know, presidential candidate talking about it as problematic as his platform was. Um, and I certainly didn't think that, you know, we'd be having this global pandemic, which all of a sudden made lots of people open to the idea of the government writing them a check. So I think that, and part of that for me is really, is really a reminder. And then, you know, and then now there's the abolition question is coming up when we're talking about defunding police. Um, and part of that is a reminder to me that, that there's nothing that we ask for or want to build a world in which we are all cared for and um, have the things that we need, that is too much. It's never too much. And I think that 
this is just a reminder to me that we all really need to be dreaming really big about what it is we want and not think in compromises when it comes to uh, what we demand from our systems and institutions and, you know, our government and our leaders. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting time for both reckoning and reimagining, right? Mm. Really understanding what's gotten us to this place, um, to this moment in time. And then, being open enough to reimagine, well, not would, instead of saying, well, what would like, you know, the iterative next step be? What would sort of like the process of quote reform be, which, you know, like this hasn't worked really across any domain. Mm -hmm. What would, if we could reimagine this, you know, like if basically we were going to start this today, what would that look like? I feel like nobody's, it's been really hard to get large numbers of people to step into that space but it does feel like, I don't know where we go from here. I don't know if it sustains, but it does feel like at least in the moment while we're having this conversation, we've been closer to being in that space with a larger, broader section of, of our population than, than at least I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, cautiously thrilled like by all of, you know, and some of it's performative, but yeah, I also feel like, you know, performance is part of what creates culture though, right? So- it still means something in the moment when, you know, babynames.com has their homepage. Have you seen this? Mm-hmm. Their homepage is a list of Black people who have been killed by police. And it says at the top, all these names were somebody's baby or something like that. Like it's, and it was, I, I you know, somebody sent it to me and I went and I looked at it and I was, it was really powerful. And, you know, and for, an organization that in my experience or a business that in my experience, like tries to be apolitical, though I don't think that's a thing, right. For them to have such a powerful statement on their homepage, like it, it means something. So even the things that are performative, like the fact that we're seeing corporations who have, you know, until now not said the word black, <laughs> you know, out loud, I think is important. And then I think I also am just like, okay, y'all, we need to like pace yourselves. <laughs> this is this is not a this is not a short term thing. Like we we really need to be thinking long term, and you know, and then it's about like actually crafting legislation and figuring out like you know, in your in your city, if like you're doing this on a national level, like what's happening in your city? Like what's the budget of your city? How much is being spent on policing and prisons or surveillance or parole? And what else could you imagine doing with all that money? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I spent um I spent a chunk of years studying um the theory and dynamics of nonviolent um, revolution, and um and one of the one of the things that was really fascinating to me was that how easy it is to rally large numbers of people around an idea and a rally call to to mobilize against something like this is what we don't want. Mm-hmm. And how brutally hard it is to then create, you know, intelligently. Well, these are even if we can't define, be able to identify these are the qualities of the thing that must replace this, and then begin to replace it on a level or or make it feel real enough so that people will transfer into supporting that on a level that will actually allow it to happen. That is it's such a harder transition to make. It's one of the challenges of progress, right? So if we think about, I mean, I've been thinking about both, you know, make America great again, right, as a slogan, but also 
the way in which, you know, a lot of businesses a couple of weeks ago or a month ago were talking about going back to normal. And there is tremendous comfort, you know, regardless of like what it actually is, there's tremendous comfort in the idea of returning to something that we have a picture of in our heads that that feels normal to us or that we can you know, I think with Make America Great Again, like we all have a picture in our head of what that means and who's included in that. Um, and for the people um, that that resonated with, that felt like that felt like safety, right? Returning back to normal, even though we know that the normal we'd be returning to was not working for the majority of people in this country. Even people who think it was working for them, it was not working for them. But people know what that what that is, right? And when you're when you're faced with this kind of invisible you know, global pandemic, this virus that is just like spreading around the globe, and someone's talking to you about returning to normal, like I get the comfort of that. So part of it is that we really need to be steadfast and kind of find the courage that we need to be like, okay, normal sucked. What do we really want? And be brave enough to actually kind of lean into that space. And then I think the other thing is that the people who, you know, it's not everybody's job to figure that out. And I think the people for whom like who are committed to doing that work need to do a good job of painting a very clear picture of what it looks like if we win. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that, and this is a big part of what my work has been, is that there are examples of what it looks like in communities all across the country. Like people are already practicing abolition. People are already working in ways that are less extractive and less white supremacist and less patriarchal than the broader society. And part of what we need to be doing is actually looking for those examples and then following the leadership of the people who are making those things a reality for themselves. And that was a big piece of what I, you know, what I did with this book. Yeah, no, I love that. And and it, it is really that focus on, okay, so what is going to step in to make things better? Um, and this idea of new community and also really reimagining when we talk about not just community, but family. Mm-hmm. Like, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by, by friends? What do we mean by family? What do we mean by extended family? And and like you were saying, like, what are the models that we can look to right now to learn from, which I'd love to explore a little bit. Yeah. This has been, really been the focus um, of the last chunk of years for you. Um, it, it, I'm curious also, you know, because I think what really step one is, is this question, you know, like reimagining, well, what is it that actually makes for a good family or a good mm-hmm. community? You know, I have, so I ask people this all the time. I'm like, what makes, what, like, what makes a good family? The first thing everyone says is love. Um, And then they talk about, you know, people who will be there for you. They talk about people who care about you, people who will support you. um, And like, you know, if you're trying to do something new, like they'll support you in that. No one ever talks about structure. No one ever is like, what makes a good, like a really good family is that you have a man and a woman who are married and they have biological children. No one has ever said that to me. And granted, like I'm not talking to like right-wing fundamentalists, but I think all of us fundamentally know that it is the function of family that is important, not the structure. And the fact is that the kind of insular nuclear family is a very recent invention. Um, The idea that two people will provide like all of the things that we need from human beings that we would get it from like one other adult and that two people can raise children 
is just like on its face absurd. Like that's never in the in human history ever been the case. We've always had extended families. We've always had chosen family. We've always had family with people who are like in our tribe who we weren't necessarily biologically related to. We have always, and when I, you know, I'm talking about like thousands of years of human history, we've always collectively raised children. So the the nuclear family really is this like bizarre, unnatural anomaly. And it is not serving us <laughs> because you know, unless you are the very small percentage of people who has one person in your life who can be, you know, the person who you are romantically and sexually attracted to, and then like actually have good sex with, the person who you can be roommates with and manage a household with and commingle your finances and travel with and be your best friend and your confidant. And then if you have kids, raise kids with like, that is too many roles for two people to fill, to both fill for each other. So, you know, what I see is that a lot of folks who are trying to do that are deeply unhappy because they're not actually getting their needs met and they don't recognize, and this is particularly true of straight men, and they don't really recognize that there are other ways for them to get some of those needs met. You know, like I'm a terrible roommate. Like my, you know, my husband and I have lived together for like 20 years, but in some other configuration of our marriage and in a world where housing was not so incredibly expensive, like it might be better for us to like, you know, live in a duplex and I could make my mess upstairs and he could keep his, you know, part neat downstairs. So part of it is about reimagining, but part of it is also recognizing that we actually used to do something else. So I think of, of it as both kind of understanding and looking to like our ancestral history and seeing how, you know, our people did things before, and then reimagining those structures and ways of being in relationship with each other for a modern life, right? So for what actually fits our lives. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's really more of a um, questioning of why, why we're doing it the way we're doing it when we have so much history of doing it differently and, and very arguably experiencing our lives in so many different ways and levels better. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because also there's there's this expectation that's set, I think, now that, you know, if you should, you know, quote, should be able to get everything you need from this nuclear family and you don't, you know, you're feeling lonely, you're feeling stressed, you're feeling overwhelmed, all the different things that, you know, like pretty much everyone tends to feel at some part of their journey in this sort of like small, tight family. If you don't feel those, then you judge yourself a failure. Exactly. And then you layer on top of that this sense of shame, which just yep. makes things worse. And then I think people end up being silent about it, right? They don't talk about it. They don't have the conversations they need to with their partner about like what they can actually do for each other. And never mind, like if you're not, if you don't have a partner, right, then what are you supposed to do? There are all of these ways in which our our culture, our the design of like, you know, houses and cars and certainly all the like benefits that exist in our culture are really created for and orient us toward uh, the insular nuclear family. And there are hell of single people in America who are having to just like navigate systems that weren't made for us and who are having to kind of exist in a culture that says that they're a failure, right? That says that there's something wrong with them. And not only is it saying that, but, but lots of folks also internalize that and assume that there's something wrong with them or feel as if their life is incomplete because they don't have a partner or they, you know, used to, and now they don't. And I think that is like, there's so many ways. And I mean, one of the stories in um, my book that I love is um, my friend Deanna, who is, does not have a partner, um, does not have a romantic sexual partner, but like her and her friend Cynthia are each other's plus one. They talk about retirement. They text each other every day. They um, have made this friendship that they have fill the role that many people look to a romantic and sexual partner for. And they both, you know, date people and have, you know, have had other relationships, um, romantic and sexual relationships, but this friendship between them is, is primary. And I love that. I just love the model of that. And largely like so much, so many of the stories that I tell in the book and the book is, you know, mostly stories. It's mostly the stories that I, I found that helped me understand and answer the questions that I had about creating family and community. They're just, they're just these, 
these models that they're not like blueprints for, for us, right? They're not like, oh, like this is what this person did. I'm going to go and replicate it. But it really is about um, having enough examples that allow us to expand our understanding of what's possible. And then we can kind of get into our own, you know, personal inquiry about what is it that I actually want in my life, right? One of the things that I learned from a bunch of the folks who I talked to about friendship was about kind of like getting rid of the the very narrow confines of how we think about what a friendship is and what it's for. And actually thinking about, you know, the people who I, like, I, I think about the people who I consider close friends and like be in conversation with them about like, what is the culture of our friendship? Like, what are the expectations we have of each other? What can we count on each other for? What are the boundaries that we have? And that's expanded the relationships I have with those people into places that do not fit into, you know, kind of the the American box of what we say a friend is. And I love the depth of those relationships. I love the kind of intimacy that that's created between me and folks, both because we're like, we're actually having conversations about our relationship, but also because we realize like, oh, here's a, here's a thing that we want from this, this relationship that is not, that we wouldn't have discovered if we hadn't had this conversation about like, how do we be friends? How do we be friends? Yeah, I mean, so you're really blurring the line, you know, so mm-hmm. instead of, you know, okay, so here's the box for family, here's the box for friends, here's the box for acquaintances. It's just saying, okay, so let's throw it up against the wall. And let's fundamentally ask the question, what do I want and need from the relationships in my life? What am I open to giving? And then how do I, how do I just construct it in a way from like the, the universe of people who are in my orbit? Exactly. That feels good. That gives exactly. me and that gives them what they need. And whether we call that family, whether we call it friends, who really cares at that point? Mm-hmm. But that requires, I mean, it really requires, especially in, in a world today where you've got this, you've got real separations, right? You've got a yeah. lot of people who go the traditional family route because maybe they feel it's right for them. And very often part of that involves pulling away from all of those people who not long before really did serve a lot of those same roles. And now they become more isolated. They start to expect they get everything from the traditional family. And then the friends that they're moving away from feel like, okay, so now I'm no longer in the, I'm no longer part of that family, but I'm also no longer a part of the bigger community of people who decided that this is the model of, of what family looks like for them anymore. And now you feel like, and, and society as, as you mentioned, you know, like kind of labels them to a certain extent and says, well, you're, you're not doing it right because you're not there yet. And it just creates more divide. So, I mean, talk about really needing to have intentional open conversation and making this a very intentional act and process. I mean, it's so important. It's, yeah. You can't just wait for it to happen and hope it does. No, there's a, there's a, I mean, you're, you're essentially choosing to counter our culture and doing that requires vigilance and tending, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm a cis woman and I'm married to a cis man. Like I, I am in a, a nuclear family. Right. And I think the, the challenge that I, that I realized in doing this work that I, is that I needed to be vigilant, right? My husband and I need to be vigilant about making sure that we're not closing ourselves off. And that's particularly true right now because we're all sheltering in place and I'm just in this house with these three other people. So I've really had to create a regular practice of making sure that I'm you know, having conversations with my loved ones about our relationships. Um, I'm checking in with people. I'm, you know, I'm receiving when people check in with me. You know, one of the one of the most powerful 
threads throughout the whole book is about how allergic we are to asking for help and accepting help and how powerful it is when we get over that. (laughs) One of the things that, and this has been emphasized for me now that like COVID is happening is that the offering support to folks I found is, is so much more powerful for them when it's specific. So instead of just people, you know, saying like, let me know if you need anything, I have been trying to insert myself into people's lives, right? Crossing this, this like boundary that we think of in our friendships and trusting the intuition I have about what I know about people's experience and who they are and offering something that I actually think would be helpful. So saying specifically, you know, um, I know you've been doing a lot of caretaking recently. Can I make like extra of what I'm making for dinner and bring it to you? As opposed to saying, let me know if you need anything. And then I think the same has been true for me. Like I've had, you know, I have a friend who in the beginning of COVID, she would text me and a couple of other people and say, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Do you need anything? And I felt my kind of resistance to saying yes, when I knew that like I'm out of salt, right? And if like, I can't, I can't, I cannot cook without salt. So if I can get this one thing that that means I can like wait to go to the grocery store for another week, like that's actually helpful for me. So I have said yes every time she has texted because there's always, you know, one or two things that I could use that would just bring ease to my life. And this last time I actually texted her and I was like, hey, (laughs) next time you go, will you get us coffee? Because I knew we were going to be out of coffee in a minute. And I would totally go to the store just to get coffee, but who wants to do, you know, especially right now, who wants to do that? So there's a way in which kind of creating that, that cycle of, of support, both giving and receiving support lets us know each other more deeply and creates intimacy. And I feel so much more held and so much less isolated because of the, you know, the past couple of months, the way in which I feel like me and the people I'm I'm in community with have um, accepted support from each other and have offered support to each other. And like, that's one of the things that I, that I'm excited to take outside of, you know, COVID is just like allowing people, being vulnerable enough, right. To allow people to know me in that way and to be in my life in that way and to encourage other people in my life to do the same. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, being vulnerable and and allowing yourself to be seen in a vulnerable state, even if it's a mild thing, like I Mm -hmm. need this, um, deepens relationships. I mean, what are the things that actually deepen relationship? It it is generally, it's vulnerability coupled with progressive revelation. Mm -hmm. And, and that has to happen both ways. And I often wonder if the reason that so few of us are comfortable doing that. And I'm raising my hand because, because I'm not the easiest person that way. Um, is that there's something in us that's wired to keep score. And there's something in us that kind of says, well, I don't want to feel beholden. You know, I don't want to, there's sort of like, you know, like there's a, somewhere mm-hmm, there is a mm-hmm. cosmic check, like credit and debit sheet that's being kept. And if it's not in balance on a regular basis, I'm, I'm always going to feel like I need to give or I need to get. See, I think that's white supremacy. I don't yeah, think that I, that's something that's wired like deeply. In. It's something that we've learned. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. 100% agree. But I, but I feel like it is a learned behavior in Absolutely. a lot of us. And it's so destructive. And it's almost like once you have a group of people who just start doing it, and part of the agreement is nobody keeps score, 
you know, it's, it's like, I mean, I've experienced that in windows in my life and it's sort of like everything dissolves and it becomes just really beautiful. Well, there's this, there's this generosity and abundance that exists when you do that. Right. And part of it, I think for me, like when part of what I, what I work through in my head when I'm offered support is that I'm recognizing that it doesn't just do something for me. It does something for the person who's offering the support. And I know that because I know what it feels like when I am able to offer support. And it's not because I'm like, yes, now I have another like check in my, you know, column of what they owe me. And it's not about, you know, earning points with my gods. It really is about feeling like I am in this generative cycle of giving and receiving that is part of that, like deepens my sense of my own humanity and deepens my sense of being part of, yeah, being part of like community. And I know how good that feels for me. So partly like with this friend of mine who texts me about the groceries, I'm like, oh, like me saying yes is a gift that I can give her. Like being vulnerable and allowing her to insert herself in my life that way is a gift that I can give her. And let me not interrupt the cycle and like mess it up, right? By not providing her with that gift. So it is an exchange, right? And I think it's important for us to recognize it as that. Um, but it's not about like, you know, it's not about like, I'm going to do this thing and then they're, they're going to owe me. Because I also feel like in some ways, like, I mean, I haven't done anything f- thing for them. I've let, sometimes I leave eggs on the porch because we have chickens and there's like too many eggs. But like mostly she just drops stuff off and like that's it. I also know that like I'm doing similar things for other people. So it's not even about just like my relationship with her and the kind of like back and forth between us. But actually that is much it's part of a much kind of grander cycle of giving and receiving that we're both part of. Yeah, no, I love that. And one of the things that also comes up in the context of that, I think, is something that you speak to. Um, which is this idea of, yes, and there are moments also when you want to have boundaries. Um, but at the same time, you can negotiate ways to interact with people. Um, one, I know one of the stories that you tell, and I thought it was a really fascinating way to approach is, you, know, you talk a lot about also um, family around food and kitchens and friendships and how that enables all sorts of different things. And how on the one hand, it's really nice to sometimes just have people drop by and granted right now, like we're not really doing that, but you know, we're going to emerge from it. Uh, but, and, and then there are other times where you would feel you know, like really intruded on mm-hmm. um, if somebody mm-hmm. just swung by. And we certainly live in a culture now where nobody I know in New York City does that. <laughs> you know, yeah. if somebody just knocked on my door, even if it was a friend of mine and said, okay, hey, let's hang out. It'd be awkward. Yeah, it'd be awkward. I'd be kind of annoyed. And I'm like, but it's not that I don't want to see them. It's sort of like there's a, there's a context. And the way that you handled saying, okay, how do I make this happen in a way where we all feel good and comfortable? I thought mm-hmm. it was really fascinating. Yeah. So I, a friend of mine talked about the fact that she would love for people to drop by. And I was like, both like, yes, that would be great. And also like, oh, hell no. Like, I don't want people just showing up on my doorstep. Like I, because like, if I don't want to see them, that would just feel, I would be annoyed, like you said. So I was like, I just need to create a container for like a window in which like people are free to drop by. So I created this thing called drop by dinner and I emailed like 20 people and it had a set of guidelines. And the first was, you know, 
I don't know if I'm gonna remember all of them, but like basically like I'm I'm like I'm not cleaning my house, I'm not preparing you a meal. You come over, bring something to add to, you know, the the nourishment that we're gonna have. I will give you whatever it is that I'm gonna give my own children, but I'm not this is not me, I'm not hosting. Right. So that was part of the the thing. I was like, you don't have to RSVP. You can just show up. You can tell me you're going to show up and show up. You can tell me you're going to show up and then not show up and not explain it to me. It's really like we're not trying to kind of create, uh, replicate any kind of like party situation. Um, I also made it clear that they could not bring anybody with them unless it was their kids because I didn't want childcare to prevent people from showing up. But I also did not want to extend this experience to people like that I didn't actually feel comfortable coming by my house when it's a mess. And then I was also like, don't leave my house messier than you found it. <laughs> I was like, clean the dishes, even if I tell you not to. So I sent it out to a handful of people and I think 15 people showed up at the first one and it was spectacular. I was wearing my pajamas. I don't think I had taken a shower that day. Um, everybody, you know, brought food. Some people had been to my house multiple times, so they knew where everything was. And some people had never been there before and just got support from other people and figuring out how to feed themselves and get what they needed. And I would just do it every few months. And I would, you know, give people maybe a day's notice or a week's notice. And sometimes three people would show up, sometimes 15 people would show up. And having my community like collide in that way, right? Like the various parts of my community collide was fantastic. The conversations that we had were always really beautiful. And I loved the, just the experience of having my loved ones in my home. Yeah. I love that. I think it's, it's, I, I have a feeling that even us being so isolated right now, so many layers of fear and possibility and change and transformation being in the air that as we emerge from this space, that people are going to start to become more open to things like this. And I think mm. um, I, I love the fact that you're sort of out there right now planting the seed to reimagine models and ways to gather and ways to define friendship and family so that as we emerge from this sort of cocoon that we're in to a certain extent, we can start to really think about this more intentionally. How do we want to step back into our relationships in our yeah. world and reimagine it and recreate it? Which feels like a, a good place for us to come full circle as well. So Hanging out here in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Mm. So many things. I think there's both kind of like my own personal growth and development that feels important to me and that that doesn't happen outside the context of my loved ones and the examples they give me and the ways they support me. And that that doesn't happen outside the context of the people that I feel in solidarity with, if I don't, even if I don't know them. And that that happens in the context of not just, you know, my kind of human relations, but all of our relations. One of the things that I've leaned more heavily on in this time of physical isolation is nature, right? Like, or the other parts of nature, because human beings are nature. I'm like, I can hug a tree. A tree is not going to give me a virus, right? And I'm not going to make it sick. So there is this web that I feel like connects me with the people closest to me, my other relations that are close to me, and then ultimately all of us. And that to me, kind of being in right relationship with all of those things feels like what it means to live a good life. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hey, if you enjoyed the conversation we had today with Mia, you will love the conversation we had with Kat Velas about how to develop friendships as adults, which is not the easiest thing on the planet. You'll find a link to Kat's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Spark. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.